Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Do you want to be blessed? Yeah, good. I'm glad. <laughs> Had me worried. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of confusion about blessing in American Christianity. I don't want to bash on American Christianity, but we all need to repent. There's been a lot of confusion about blessing and prosperity, particularly. So some have decided to teach that the prosperity that the Bible promises you, because it does, is a financial prosperity, even unto a physical prosperity that would basically be heaven on earth and a life without death, to hear some of them teach it. I remember one lady, particularly in her late 80s, with cancer, on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, praying for a miracle. And I thought, hmm, now this one might not work out, my friend. And indeed, you know, Tammy Faye Baker, I believe her name was, died a year later. I just hope she still trusted Jesus when she did. Because she thought he was going to heal her. And when he didn't, I don't know what that did to her. That's the scary thing about false teaching. But because these thieves have preached to you that if you'll just go to church, you'll get money. They've got a lot of people doing it. And they figured out that the best way to get you to think it's going to work is to get you in a rock concert and make you feel good. If they can do that, your brain turns off like when you're watching TV, and they can just tell you whatever you want, and you'll believe it. And you'll move along as a group, as a herd, and just do whatever you're told. Now, again, there are good, faithful Christians out there in the midst of the churches doing this. There are many Christian pastors in the midst of this big move and wave, and we call it a zeitgeist once upon a time. It means the spirit of our age. The point is now, though, we have to repent of realizing, or we have to realize and repent that the blessing the scriptures talk about is not health, wellness, and everlasting temporal joy with all your neighbors all the time, and everywhere you go, success and victory, always, always, always. And we Lutherans who have realized that's a lie also need to repent of not believing God's going to answer our prayers, of not praying, of not believing God's a Savior, not just a Savior from long ago, but a Savior today, a Savior today. Now, I'm not going to point fingers at anyone but myself here, but I know this. I know this, that when things have gone wrong, my first instinct has always been to try to fix it. I got to go do something about it. And what I'm learning from the Psalms is that my first instinct is to do nothing and open the Bible and talk to God with his words about the situation. And what I find is that indeed it blesses me. Indeed, it has brought me a prosperity beyond my imagination, and yet nothing has actually changed. I don't have more money. I just have more, honestly, peace. Now, I've preached in the past about how peace is not a feeling. In the Bible, peace is God's declaration to you that it's all good now. Like, we're on the same team, people. I'm your almighty father who you hate, but I love you and I'm saving you. Check out what I did to my son for you. It's all going to work out. Believe me. That's peace. But that peace can be believed. And when it is believed in the face of chaos, it in fact does bring your heart some solace. Maybe even a lot. But it's kind of like a muscle. You know, I, I don't know what they teach in school these days at all, honestly. Do they teach you that push-ups make you stronger? Or does everyone just get to be strong because they came to class? I, I don't know. I don't know. That's kind of the direction it's been. I'm not really being sarcastic. You know, trophies for everybody has, I mean, you see what it did to us, right? So 
But the fact is, if you want your muscles to work, I mean, this is good advice around the board. You know, you're 50, and you want to be able to bend over and stand up when you're 70. You have to use them. You have to practice it. You have to keep doing it. If you just sit, then that's all your body will be able to do. Now, your faith works a lot like this. It's a free gift. It's given to you like your muscles. You didn't make your muscles. But they're there to use. And if you don't use them, they kind of wither on the vine a little bit. So faith is exercised by facing temptation. What does that mean? Everything you don't like, everything you don't think is a blessing, you face that with the blessing that you know you have. That's faith. And so someone's at you screaming in your face about this, that, or the other thing, as actually happened to me Friday night at the Euro shop down on State Street. No, Auburn, excuse me. What a time that was. Yelling at me, cursing at me, screaming racial slurs about the people around us. Hooey, what a time. What do you do in that moment? Do you lose your cool? I simply asked him to walk away from me. Amazingly, he did. I believe there were dark powers at work. I believe he couldn't handle the fact that I wasn't afraid of him. Even though my body was. My body was shaking. But I've worked this muscle. I spent all Friday night working it more. I went and talked to people at the market. I did things I've never done as a human. I don't care if you ever do this. I don't want you to mimic me just because I said it. What I want you to understand is that it's a muscle. And I am intentionally going to strengthen my muscle by exercising it. And I will do that by trying to pray the Psalms first. I've been doing it. That's where I want you to start. And I want you to believe that if you give yourself the life of the Psalms as your mind and heart before Jesus, you will be talking to people, not just about Jesus, but about whatever you think is important. You'll be doing it without fear. And you'll be doing it with a patience that you never had. Because you'll be wiser. Like literally wiser. That's what it means to be blessed, by the way. Truly. The, the blessing of the scriptures is to be able to see what's really going on. And I don't mean like I look at the conspiracy theories and I know which one is the right secret cabal way at the top. That's not what I mean. I mean that in your actual life, not the one you watch through a screen or hear about from electronic media, the people that you run into where you are, you will become aware of them. You will start to see them both as sinner and if they're Christian as saint in ways you never have before. And you will be able to relate to them in ways you can't relate to anybody on the screen because they're not here. And the blessing, the blessing again of Christianity is Christianity. We don't become Christians to get something else. When you become Christians, you're surrounded by Christians. And Christians are people who, saved by grace alone, exercise the freely given muscle of faith to be better than we were by seeing each other. Not as enemies or competitors in a claim for righteousness before God, some zero-sum game where it's all a trade, but as an actual birthed new family, new humanity, kingdom. That's the blessing to the man, man is the summary of all humans. Ladies, you're included in men. You always are. When the Bible speaks this way, when God made Adam, guess what came right out of Adam next, right? You. So let's, blessed is the man. Notice the walking. That's going to come back in Ephesians. He walks. That's a summary of your life in Hebrew thinking, that your life is your walk. When you go places, you have to walk. How do you walk? Why do you walk? Who do you walk with? 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, it says. And once upon a time, to hear the wicked, you indeed had to be at a market or down a road. But now you just turn a switch and the wicked talk to you. So the trick here is how to discern which wicked voices to turn off and which ones to keep on. Or, or maybe, am I willing to turn off all the wicked ones? And how far does that go when you try? Do you want the blessing? Well, you can't walk in the counsel of the wicked. You can't let people who aren't Christians tell you everything and it's our truth and you believe it. You just can't. You have to start with what the Bible says and believing that in your family, in your church, and then discerning everything else from there. It'll talk about what that means in a moment, but it's not walking in the counsel of the wicked because once you do that, notice how the walker ends up standing. He's going to walk, he's going to stand, and he's going to sit. It gets worse and worse and worse. He walks in bad counsel. As a result, he ends up standing with, staying by, taking a stand beside sinners. It's a hard statement I'm going to make right now. It's a hard statement. Right now, the world wants everyone to take a stand with the transgender community. That's, that's literally what they're saying is stand with us. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way, the path, not even in front of, if you can help it, I suppose, sinners. Because the main thing about sin is they don't see anyone but themselves. That's really what sin is. It's like a blindness to everybody else. Like everything's about me. And so if you're in the way of a sinner, <laughs> you're in the way. <laughs> You don't want to be there. And if you end up being there, guess what happens? You end up sitting with the scoffer. And let me tell you, I'm way too much of this human being. I don't know that any American, and especially any Lutheran pastor, so you don't get to include yourselves in this, but I don't know very many Lutheran pastors who don't sit in the seat of scoffers. And by this, here's what I mean. Here's what they've done to us. They've made it so that we're so despairing and so hopeless and so afraid of the people in our churches that when we get together as pastors to try to figure out how on earth we can trust Jesus and do more, all we can do is complain and grumble and try to make jokes about it because it hurts so much. That is, we've taken up the mantle of scoffer. Oh, you can't try that because that won't work. And that's where you sit when you listen to the counsel of the wicked long enough. So if we find ourselves sitting in the seat of grumbling scoffers, it's not, did I listen to the wrong counsel? It's not, did I stand with the wrong people? It's, am I going to stop now? Am I going to change now that I see? Will I avoid the way that is wide and filled with giant holes that lead to hell? Blessed is the man who doesn't do any of that. Why? How? You're like, how can I be this person? Verse 2. His delight is in the law of Jesus Christ. And on his law, he meditates day and night. There's two main things I want to make sure we see here. The first is that the word law has nothing to do with the Lutheran dogmatic distinction of law and gospel. The distinction between law and gospel, as our confession day, is a particularly glorious light. That means it's an insight into how God works and who God is. That is, he does not ask you to come to him by the law, that is, by good things you do, 
But instead, he has proclaimed the gospel as a word like proclamation, a promise, a victory promise, that he has already come to you. And so therefore, he is with you. And everything you do is not based on getting to him, but on knowledge that he is in you now. As the Holy Spirit, a third person of the Trinity. Huh? That idea of the gospel of God coming to you, we Lutherans never want to forget. But we don't want to import the words into the Bible where the Bible's not talking about that. And here the word law doesn't mean law as in like just something you do. It's really the most powerful word in the Old Testament in many ways. You should know it. You've heard it. I know it's Torah. Say that with me. Torah. One more time. Torah. Whenever you see law in the Old Testament, it's probably Torah. And what you should do in your head is you should write scripture there or the Bible. I mean, that's the American way. The Bible. It doesn't sound like how Hebrews would have said it. They didn't have books. They had scrolls. But they did call those scrolls scripture, written things. Torah is the holy scripture, the holy writing of Yahweh, God, the Father of Jesus Christ. What the man who is blessed is and does is he is blessed by that scripture being in his mind and heart. That's what meditation is day and night. How do you do that? How do you get the scriptures in you day and night? I mean, I don't got time for anything. When am I going to sit down and give 30 minutes to some notes and a journal and paying attention? I don't even know what that bit means. I'm just going to go tune out. That's way easier tonight. Right? So this is where the Psalms is really the kickoff for some hope for you this year. I promise you, again, follow me on this one and you will see manifestations of hope in your life. The Psalter Again, is the prayer book of God. It's what Jesus used whenever he needed to like decompress from the world. And you heard it. You heard how he heals one guy. And next thing you know, he's got a whole hospital around him saying, you know, feed us, feed us at one point. And he just doesn't have time for that. He wants to teach. He says that in other places. But as a man, he's a man. I get it. He's God, but he's not a Superman. It's not like he can just walk around and never sleep. I mean, he can use his powers to do that. He doesn't do that. He lives as a man. He eats real food. You know, he goes to the bathroom. And so after a while, having 3,000 people around him all the time, he, he just can't take it. Now, he's good as he does that. I did it like I would do it, right? He does it good. <laughs> but what's he do then? He goes to where he knows mankind, which he is now, has been provided an absolute source of stability and truth from, to, and back from God. One of the great mistakes, again, of American Christianity has been this idea that prayer is like a sacrament. That in your prayers, you find God. That's true if your prayers are the Psalms. It's not true if your prayers are just whatever you want or whatever you feel. So again, the Psalter is here to be your easy access way to meditate upon God's word. That's what Jesus does. He shows you. Paul also encourages us to this. I'm going to close with that with the Ephesians text. But what I want to emphasize again here then is that day and night. Okay, I'm going to back up. I don't have a nice transition here. But day and night, 
I mean, how are you going to remember to do that? You got to set your Bible out. You got to do all da, 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 da. It's much easier than trying to read the whole Bible or sit down and study Psalm 23 every morning for one year and Psalm 1 every night for one year. Go. You are meditating upon the Torah day and night. You will be blessed. Now, that's so easy. All it means is your Bible and two ribbons so that if you're that lazy that you can't actually do that, it's on you. It is on you. Psalm 23, every morning. Psalm 1, every night. You will be blessed. It's the definition. You will be as we are going to be, and I have no doubt of this, St. Paul, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. That is, lips that know these words and say these words. So our leaf will not wither. In all that we do, we will prosper. What that really means is our children are going to stay Christian. That's the promise. That's the great news of this religion. You can pass it on, and it's forever. And whatever else they might do or get or achieve in this life, it burns in ash. But they can come with you. They can come with you. That's the prosperity God promises. That they will. So again, as a wide church, not just you, St. Paul, the whole American spectrum watches a whole generation not come with us. What do we do? Blame them? Scoff about it? Laugh about it? I tell you, repent. For what, Pastor? It doesn't matter. <laughs> like, like, that's just your position. <laughs> like, like, get on your knees and say, Jesus, whatever's going on, like, stop the bad, and I'm sorry too, and teach me to see. And of course, the Psalms will do that for you. You don't have to come up with it. All I did right there was say what the Psalms have taught me to say by practice over time. I, just reading it over and over again, it starts to come out of you. Yeah, The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is the part of the grain that is on the outside. It's like a, a little tiny flake. And it comes off and they would, they would do this with it. They'd, they'd break it in onto the floor and it would fall. So you'd have the grain and the chaff. But then they'd take this big kind of rake-looking thing, uh, the threshing tool, and they would throw it up in the air all together. And that chaff is so light that if they had someone making wind with that rake, it would blow out the window. They had like a kind of a barn window set up, and then there'd be a fire out there. So all the chaff would end up outside in the fire because the wind blew it. And all the seed, the grain, would end up on the threshing floor, on the floor, where you could gather it up. Right? This is before the, the gins and all that that we came up with. Um, so, but his point here then is that the wicked man, the one who will not simply believe what God says, pray this and it will be true. The one who won't do that, he's effectively going to be blown away. And this isn't like God's going to punish you for not praying the Psalter. It's more that the times are just that bad. And it's always that case. You're just going to be overwhelmed by everybody else's religions. If you don't practice your own. It's just common sense, right? The wicked are going to be blown away by whatever new idea comes their way. Therefore, the result of this for them, this is sad. This is why we want to tell people about Jesus. This is why we want people to know that we're not a people of gloom and despair, but of authentic trust and hope. Because those who are of gloom and despair, this age, this world, the ungodly, they're not going to stand in the judgment. That is to say that on the final day, they will be ashamed. All the shame they've taken pride in now, they will be ashamed of it then, and that will be a sad thing. None of us want that. But we also know the only way it doesn't happen is that I repent now myself. 
And then from there, I know the words will again come out to others and they will be encouraged. Where does that happen? In the congregation of the righteous. That's verse 5. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. We are fond of referring to Matthew 18 as a church discipline text. If you know what I mean, that meant a lot to you when I said it. But let me suggest it's not the only one. And that this one is very, very clear. Right? So on Judgment Day, uh, the, the ones who don't believe in Jesus are going to not believe in Jesus. They're going to go in the place prepared for them. Uh, right now, this congregation, not ours, but all congregating of Christians, it is the gathering of a great group of people in which there will be some who come and then decide, I don't want this. I can't take this. I don't like this because it's just wrong. You see Jesus have this happen to him when he first teaches about how you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood in John 6. And great crowds leave him. The point, sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. They will leave if you all are talking about and trying to be justified, righteous livers. Finally, then, this is because, verse 6, Jesus Christ, our God, he knows our way, the way of the righteous. He has prepared it. He has laid it before you. He has set your path so that your foot will not stumble, but you will walk with confidence as one who has a true God. But the way of the wicked, the one who will not have the simplicity of faith given in words that can never perish. Well, again, then that's what he will do is perish on his own. Now, I wanted to close this morning with Ephesians 5. So if you've got that Bible passage in the, in the bulletin there, do look at it. Because this is, this is going to take it all and make it just, I hope, very homey, very familial. Psalm 1 is intense. We just opened the Psalter with like a bang. The next one, Psalm 2, is like, if you don't believe in Jesus as the king, you're going to hell and we're going to sing about it. I mean, it opens with a bang. Start with 23 and do one at night and believe that you're one, okay? And we, there's more ways in from there, but let's start there as a group. It will bless you. Notice how um, Paul's language is not so much about you're in, you're out. He's talking to you as one who's in. Because you're in, you're different. You're set apart. You see more clearly than those who do not have the word of God in them. For that reason, you can hear what he says and begin to, again, practice it. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Notice the word walk again as a summary for what our life looks like. Notice how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. The word there in the Greek is, is literally unwise. It's the opposite of the word wise. It doesn't mean fool. It just means without wisdom. You might say ignorant would be a way to say that. right? Let us not be ignorant, but wise making the best use of the time. Recently, I've talked in a couple of corners with you about the word time. There's two major ideas of time in all history, civilization, and in the Bible, and we tend to just use the word time for all of it. We do have other words. We just don't think of them as time, and they're often not used in the translation. But the word here doesn't mean like your clock or like the calendar. It means the season. The season. It's a short time. It's a temporary time. It's a special time, right? It's a good time. And there's a time and a season for everything, Solomon tells us. That's the idea here. So again, make the best use of the season. That means you got to know where you are. You got to know that not everything's always the same. You got to know that the way we've always done it is ignorance. Maybe we should do it the way we've always done it, but not if we don't know why. That's a really bad reason to do anything. 
just because somebody told you to. Goodness gracious. Don't be unwise because the days are evil. Don't miss it. It's so true. This is not a paradise. This is not a place to set down roots forever. It's a place to know that Christ is coming to destroy in order to redeem and make flourish. And the flourishing is here in us, in this belief, in this story that cannot be destroyed. But that these days around us are never going to accept that. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, right? Don't listen to the counsel of the wicked. Read the Bible instead. And then it has this interesting left turn about alcohol. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He is, I don't think, saying you cannot have a beer or a wine, a glass of wine. And I'll just give you the Proverbs. The Proverbs say it in all sorts of spectrum. There's not an either or. There's a think about it. Beer is a brawler, it says. But it also says, give wine to those who are perishing and let them remember their misery no more. It says wine is not for kings, right? Uh, don't stare upon the glass when it is red. Right? If you're rich and you have the time to drink all the time, bad idea. Yeah. Um, if, if you're a working man and you, you have a, a glass at the pub and you sing a song on the way home, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad idea. What's the song about? That could be a bad idea. Point again here, why is he emphasizing drunkenness specifically? It's not alcohol he's after at the moment per se, although it is about spirits in alcohol. That is, what does what you're doing do to your spirit? And where it says uh, that is debauchery, I'm going to just quibble with that translation a bunch. It says, in it is dissolution. Do not become drunk Methe, it's like methamphetamine. Do not become overwhelmed in your mind with alcohol, for in that is dissipation. It's pretty simple. Alcohol is not going to heal you. It's going to make it worse if you try to use it to heal you. But the Holy Spirit will heal you in the way you need healing most. Will it give you what alcohol gives? No way. Will it give you conviction that what hurts now will pass? Yes, yes, your pain has a half-life. Your pain is going to end. It ends at your death or the day of Christ's return. And so every moment you have pain now, it's super fuel for remembering Christ's return if you will practice remembering Christ's return. Getting drunk with wine is forgetting, right? So what, it says it itself in the Proverbs. Let them drink wine and remember their misery no more. When you drink, you drink to forget. The big question is not like, ooh, you bad person, you drink too much. It's what are you afraid of? What are you hiding from? What don't you believe that you won't see? Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Let me just say, start there. I mean, honestly, if you're, the internet is a big white place. If you've got an alcohol problem, just, just don't worry about it for a moment and read those Psalms I told you first. Do that for a year. Start with what you know will work, and you quitting what you can't quit is not what you know will work. You praying what you know God will answer always is what you know will work. Hmm? So drunkenness is a type of spirituality that leads to disillusion. He wants a spirituality that will lift us up, and he tells us exactly what it is in the next verse. So it's really easy to be distracted by all that alcohol talk and not see. That's not even his point. His point is what you have. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns 
and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Now, each of those words is way more narrow than our English gives it. So the Psalms there is very clearly a reference to the Old Testament book of Psalms. The word is psalmos uh, or psalmoi in Greek, and it is the Greek title of that book, Psalms, in the Greek Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament calls the book the Tehillim, which is a book of praises, is what that means. And that's interesting because, so it says Psalms at the start of the book, and that's Tehillim. And then I think it's in Psalm 2, or maybe it's Psalm 3. It says for the first time, a Psalm of David, but that's not Tehillim. That's a different word, uh, mitzmot, mitzmor, mitzmor. I don't know a ton about that, but what I do know is this again, that when Paul, in the Greek text, uses the word psalms, he doesn't mean random songs. He doesn't mean the psalm that Odysseus sang in, in, in the Odyssey, and the word is used there. But it means what has been appropriated to mean for the Jewish people. So when Paul says to you, Ephesian Christians, you Gentile Christians, address one another in psalms, he means it. This is not an option. This is not something you can choose to do or not do. You are to speak the words of the Bible and the words of the Psalms are there to start you. They're there to start you. Now the hymns is interesting. Okay, I'll try to be quick here and wrap this up. The hymns though, um, a hymn in Greek thought is a song sung to an instrument. So you read the Psalms out loud and you've sung the Psalm, even if you never make music with it. You, you have prayed before God. A hymn is prayer with an instrument. We have lots of those here. Usually just one instrument these days, but you know we can have many. And then that spiritual song, Holdice Pneumatice, poems of the Spirit. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean, if you go back to the old blue hymnal and you flip to the back of it, you'll see a section that says spiritual songs. And it's like, it's like the quote from this. And it's, it's like, why are those spiritual songs? It, uh, usually because they were um, African-American spirituals, which is not what the Bible's talking about. What the Bible's talking about is that throughout the Bible, there are other songs buried in the Bible. The song of Hannah, the Magnificat, yeah, uh, the song of uh, Simeon. These are spiritual songs. They're poetry of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. What does that mean? It means they're good for memorizing. They're easy to memorize. It means they're good for quoting. They'll come out of you if you let them. Yeah. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's that simple right there. Spiritual songs. Singing and making melody, it really does mean there with your voice and with instruments. But it's all in your heart and it's all to the Lord. That is, we are to, in fact, praise and worship Jesus Christ by praying the Psalter. Letting the Psalter inhabit us as the very Holy Spirit of God. And then believing that these words will make us, again, what it promises, blessed, prosperous, like a tree planted by streams of water, bringing forth our fruit in season. I've challenged you a bit today, St. Paul, but I really think this is going to be a fun year. I'm looking forward. Next week, we get the Proverbs, kind of an introduction to that, and, and off we're going to go. We won't sit still too long. So take nothing else. Psalm 23 in the morning. You won't regret it. Psalm 1 at night. And you men, if you want more, pick up one of those Sons of Solomon booklets on your way out the door. It'll take you even further. Nah? In the name of Jesus.